What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, I'll be in conversation with Treva B. Lindsay. Maybe our history is the bad apple, right? That has spoiled the bunch. That at the core of who we are is violence, is indigenous genocide, is chattel slavery, is wars, is imperialistic endeavors, is patriarchy and the subjugation of women. I think it's important to people who want us to not focus on those things and to say that they have power because they earned it, they worked for it, that this is a free nation, that this is built on these ideals, that our history runs up against that in such a profound way and contradicts it in such a profound way that their truth that they've created shatters in the face of history. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning is Treva Lindsay, an Associate Gender and Sexuality Studies Department professor at Ohio State University and founder of the Transformative Black Feminisms Initiative in Columbus, Ohio. Her new book, America Goddamn, explores violence against Black women and girls in America, how we got to the place uh, where it is a normalized secret, and the reverberation of this violence on every facet of our social uh, and community fabrics. Treva, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me. So glad to be in conversation with you again. Um, I imagine most people that are going to hear the title or pick up the book are going to go immediately where I went and where you intended us to go. And that is, of course, Tanina Simone's protest song, Mississippi. Goddamn. Um, and I would like you to talk about the connection there. Absolutely. So one, I love Nina Simone. My family's yeah. from North Carolina. Nina Simone is a North, one of our most amazing, glorious North Carolinians. But that song in particular always struck me, both in terms of the way it's performed, it almost sounds like a show tune in certain ways when it starts, but it's this searing indictment of the United States. And even though she's homing in on Mississippi and specifically the assassination of Medgar Evers and the Birmingham church bombing that killed four little girls named Addie, Denise, Carol, and Cynthia, she really is talking about all of these different states and what racial injustice and what racial violence looks like. And she's also talking about the protests. She's talking about the resistance that we've mounted in response to that. And so for me to say America Goddamn was really leaning into that title, creatively reimagining it, but with the same intention that Nina Simone, I believe, was doing with that song of not only talking about the problem of racial violence, but what the resistance to it looks like, what the struggle for justice actually looks like. And she hadn't done protest music before this song. We tend to remember her as a deeply politically committed artist, and that is absolutely part of her legacy. But she was always struggling with how do you put the history of African-Americans, particularly violent and inglorious histories, such as white supremacist violence, into three minutes and 30 seconds. But with this song and what was happening, she could no longer not use that amazing voice of hers, that amazing pen of hers, that amazing musicianship of hers to bring that to the fore in her music and into audiences that were not attuned to how bad it was and if they were attuned to indict them. And you know, something that strikes me actually as we're starting this conversation that didn't hit me when I was 
preparing for this interview is, you know, when we talk about violence against Black women, when we hear the word violence, we think physical violence, right? But violence against Black women in this country happens in all sorts of ways. And Nina Simone paid a price for transitioning her music to protest music, for calling out white America and suffered all sorts of violence herself. And which directly impacted her mental health, which is another mental and emotional health, right? Which is another thread for black women in this country. If you could talk about that a bit. Absolutely. You know, being a truth teller, particularly for black women, because when you look at what's happening to black women and girls in this country, and this is across history, you see the depths of depravity. You see the depths of criminalization. You see the depths of violence and violation that are happening. And it was important for me in this book to talk about physical violence, direct violence, and the more common ways that we understand that violence is occurring, as well as the kind of rhetorical violence, the words that are used against us, the ways that we're punished, the ways that we're engaged, the harmful racist and sexist stereotypes, anti-poor stereotypes, ableist stereotypes, homophobic and transphobic behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs that deplete and diminish and attempt to dehumanize Black women and girls. And the fact of the matter is nothing can dehumanize us, right? Um, those who are engaging in these practices are practicing inhumanity, but it is an attempt to denigrate and deride. And those are really important things that we're combating. And that absolutely has our impact on our mental health, our psychological well-being, our emotional well-being. And so I wanted to speak about that in the book in ways that brought that to the level of violation and violence that we think of more typically and put this all in one conversation. It is a climate of violence that we're engaging. Which is a good segue to me asking you to parse out a, a term that you use in the book um, talking about our lives in this country, unlivable lives. Yes. So I, that is a this kind of Black woman-centered riff on a concept by gender theorist Judith Butler, who was really thinking through minoritized existence, particularly for queer people. And I wanted to think about that in relationship, obviously, to queer people, and more specifically, Black women and girls who would sit at this nexus of multiple, vulner multiple vulnerabilities. And unlivable living means we're being asked to survive some truly terrible things on any given day and somehow keep living and keep surviving and in some contexts thriving. And so unlivable living for me was a way to think about how interdependent oppressive systems like racism, sexism, uh, capitalism, and particularly the creation of poverty um, and ableism and other forms of oppression all are working together in the lives of Black women and girls. So that often we'll hear Black women being like, girl, I can do it all, right? We specialize in the holy impossible, the famous motto from the great Nanny Helen Burroughs. And this is her noting that we're being asked to do the impossible time and time again, but at what cost to us? What it what cost to our mental health, what cost to our families, what cost to ourselves when we're constantly having to take on this burden of everything and then some. And so Unlivable Living really captures that for me and hope captures that for readers. I guess I would I would pose an additional question. You not, not only at what cost to us, but also what 
other options do we have? Right. I mean, you know, you have to figure out this way. You have to navigate it. But I do think we see that showing up in these other realms. One of the chapters in the book deals with our health. And I think when we think about our health, both physically, mentally, psychologically, emotionally, that we see it wearing us down. So we may believe that Black does not crack and outside we out here looking fierce, but trust and believe internally, we are consistently and constantly being worn down. And I think that's really important to keep in mind that our fierceness is in no way in impervious armor. Right. It is something that is penetrable and it is something that is deeply damaging and has very real outcomes. Everything from our birth outcomes to autoimmune disorders to other treatments related to mental health and mental distress. It affects us. And we do see suicide rates that are rising among our youth in particular. So I think we have to be very careful when we say, look, we persevere no matter what. I want to change the conditions of no matter what. That's what the struggle for justice is. So that's not the requirement for living in this world as a Black girl or Black woman. I want to stick with this theme on narrative or, or even non-narrative, as it were, in terms of where I'm about to go. We saw the birth of the Say Her Name movement in 2015, right? I mean, Black women since chattel slavery, which, you, you know, and you, you make that connection in the book, right? Uh, we, we've been dying at the hands of, of white supremacy in, in a variety of forms and, and fashion. And, and, and yet, our, when it comes to talking specifically about state violence, mm-hmm. it has been very hard, right, to, to, to get this conversation off the ground, that A, the primary way that we suffer it is, is through sexual assault, um, but, but also that we, we are literally dying too, right? So we had this upsurge of this movement in 2015, um, and yet I'll, I'm going to say the name Madeline Miller, and I guarantee you that there may be a couple folks on this call who know that there was a 64-year-old black woman murdered in Flossmoor, Illinois in July, but most folks won't know. Right. And, and in the book, you know, you talk about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, and, and while we did, there's a bunch of us, including yourself who pushed, right. Who said her name and said her name and said her name. There is just not the same response. There is not the same visceral reaction. There is not the same outrage Mm. when it's a dead black woman's body laying in those streets. Yes. I mean, you said a word there and, you know, saying her name for, so many of us who are doing that work and shout out here, of course, to Kimberly Crenshaw and Andrea Ritchie and the African-American um, Policy Forum for, for coining that and really bringing attention to the severity of the issue of police violence and police brutality against Black women and girls that most people won't know those names. I mean, there are a couple. I don't think we would know Breonna Taylor had George Floyd not been murdered. I'm not sure right. we would have, especially given that she was killed more than two months before he was. And that's very telling. And the number of people who were killed after that. But I'll take a more recent example. Nationally, there's been some conversation, still not enough, about the unjust killing of Jalen Walker in Akron, Ohio. And, you know, being here in Ohio, we protest and engaged and it's, it's devastating. And we should be paying attention to this. We should be putting resources and energy into supporting that community and that family and pushing for justice. And and it's hard to think about what justice looks like when a life is taken away. 
But most people aren't talking about Jada Johnson, who was a yes. black woman who was killed in Fayetteville, North Carolina, um, in her home when initially people were called for mental distress. She was distressed because a partner of hers was threatening to come do things to her. And she was thinking that this person was coming to attack her and her family and her child. And she is killed in front of her loved ones, including her two-year-old child by police. And it's the common thread that we see in a lot of these killings of Black women being in some form of mental distress that we see a number of these police murders, whether that be Tanisha Anderson, Deborah Danner, Eula Love, <laughs> Eleanor Bumpers, across history, this is something that we see. And it's often in our homes. And so it's not this spectacular site, but the site at which we tend to think we're safe. But we know that the state in so many ways is so oppressive even in our home spaces and so violent and criminalizing. And that's everywhere from child protective services taking our children to police engaging us violently to sexually assaulting. These things happen in those spaces. And so a number of the victims of police brutality are happening in these more intimate spaces when the victim is a Black woman or girl. You're listening to Law and Disorder with Kat Brooks. I'm in conversation with Treva Lindsay about her new book, America, Goddamn. Treva, the, the last time uh, you and I spoke, uh, I believe it was shortly after the murder of 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant, which happened <laughs> as the jury was reading the guilty verdict uh, for the murder of George Floyd um, against Derek Chauvin, was we talk about different forms of violence, the adultification of black girls, the the adultification of our children, the the refusal to allow them to be children, which leads to a whole host of other issues, which which we'll get into. But I want I want you to talk about why adultification is violent, why they were allowed to call Micaiah Bryant a woman, as opposed to admitting that they shot a child, center mass. Mm. Well, there's one part of this that we just don't see the full humanity of Black people broadly, but there's something very particular about the ways that Black girls are engaged in this country. And we see this in our schools, we see this in different institutions, and we certainly see it in policing, in that there is not just this adultification that happens, which is absolutely part of this, this process by which youth is denied, the kind of innocence of youth, of childhood is denied for Black people and specifically for Black girls. And they're then treated like Black women, <laughs> which means they're also treated terribly. So it's the combined thing, because whenever I think about adultification, I'm like, wow, adultification is terrible because it denies a certain level of innocence that's often afforded to the category of child. And a protective impulse that we often have with children. But then the fact that we know that adultifying a black person means that they're gonna be treated the way that black adults are treated, which is criminalizing, which is violent, which is not valued, which is disenfranchised. And that is what's so striking about this. And so you get a 16 year old black girl who is treated like a criminalized black adult and they're unable to see her in who she is, in the fullness of who she is, this little girl who's making these beautiful TikTok videos and laying down her baby hairs and love listening to music and was such a great big sister 
to her sister Janiyah. Like these are the things that are denied when you evacuate what we often afford to children, which is a level of protection and care and a, a, at least a presumptive innocence um, that's there. And blackness evacuates that for her. Her girlness and black girlness specifically evacuates that from her. I, and I heard you say unable, and I guess just the maybe it's the jaded, the jaded part of who I am. It's unable or unwilling, right? Because mm. I can't help but I can't help but believe if Micaiah had blonde hair and blue eyes and had gotten into whatever altercation did or did not happen, right? That there would have been allowance for teenage emotions, teenage. You know, mm-hmm. my 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 daughters were stomping around the house yesterday about something, right? And I'm allowed to inhale and just be like, you know what? She's 16. <laughs> she's yes. 16 you know and and Micaiah and so many of our girls are not afforded that and so I guess that's that's part one I'm asking you to respond to but then I want to tie it back to maybe where I should have started right because it's always important to look at the history because for white supremacy as an institution and for a lot of white folks in particular right our history in this country started off as breeders like as soon as mm-hmm. we could right 12 13 14 during chattel slavery and that has just made its way down through the generations yes yes i ooh, there's a lot there <laughs> Kat, so that first part of saying when you said you know um unable or unwilling and i think it's both i think white supremacy creates a context in which people don't even have a lens or tools <laughs> to be more humane than they are. Like white supremacy literally evacuates humanity from people. And I, and I say that to say that white inhumanity is what I want to hold accountable, that this takes a large divestment and unlearning as well as learning a set of tools. So it's like not black people proving that we're human, but it's actually the question of, does white supremacy allow for those who are its enablers, its architects, its, um, proprietors to fully engage other people as though we are worthy of personhood. And I don't know that, right? That their personhood is suspect in that context. Relational personhood is suspect in that context. And so I think it's a deep-rooted combination of the two of unwilling not wanting to as well as the inability to because white supremacy doesn't demand it of you. To, to see black children in any particular way. But I think that history that you're talking about feeds into that because as we look at a nation that's now reckoning with a huge shift in the landscape of reproductive rights and access that we understand the birth of this nation is through the wombs of black women and girls, through sexual violence, through forced breeding, through gynecological advances made through experimentation on enslaved black women and plantation doctors figuring stuff out on enslaved black people. So we have centuries even before the more well-known Tuskegee experiment to look at the ways we've been experimented upon to advance other people's health while our health is denigrated and not accounted for, while also our productive and reproductive labor literally birthing a nation on occupied land. And, and, and understanding, right, and we'll get to like, what what is the path forward? What, what, what do we need 
to, to, to do to shift this um, in a minute. But but putting together these pieces, understanding this, right, is, is critical to being able to figure out how we forge the path forward. And so to, to, to that end, when you see these movements sweeping, you know, the southern parts of the country in particular to erase this history, to rewrite this history, to prevent even the concept that, or the facts, excuse me, that chattel slavery existed in this country from the history books. What is the inherent danger of that to there being a pathway forward? It's incredibly dangerous. It's one of the reasons I've trained to be a historian. We have to tell these difficult histories. We have to be willing to reckon with them. We have to see the patterns. We have to see the continuities. We have to be able to identify what the afterlives of slavery are. To someone like Sadia Hartman, to think about what that means. And I think that erasure is an attempt to say what we're seeing right now is not rooted in anything, it, then it makes it easier to dismiss it as unimportant or an issue that doesn't need addressing. That's just this bad incident. It's the bad apple theory, as opposed to saying, maybe our history is the bad apple, right? That has spoiled the bunch. That at the core of who we are is violence, is indigenous genocide, is chattel slavery, is wars, is imperialistic endeavors, is patriarchy and the subjugation of women. I think it's important to people who want us to not focus on those things and to say that they have power because they earned it, they worked for it, that this is a free nation, that this is built on these ideals, that our history runs up against that in such a profound way and contradicts it in such a profound way that their truth that they've created shatters in the face of history. So what better way to erase that history in order to make the present feel more just for you and fit into the narrative of equity and really of power, right? Because equity for them is not some goal, right? And it's not even a goal for a lot of really dynamic activists, not just equity. We're looking for justice. We're looking for liberation. We're looking for freedom. And for so many who've had that power and the systems that have held that power, the institutions that have held that power for centuries upon centuries, the unveiling of history will mean we'll have to ask some difficult questions and do some different things and wrest some power from those institutions. And that is something that I believe so many who have the power to make changes are unwilling to do. And so what do you do? You go at education. You go at the spot where you might be able to radicalize students. And that's what they fear is happening in these so-called liberal classrooms, <laughs> that students are being radicalized. And it's like radicalized simply means to get at the root. To be radical is to get at the root of a problem. And we need history to get at the root of the problem. They don't want us to see a problem, let alone get to the root of it. You are listening to Law and Disorder with Kat Brooks. I'm in conversation this morning with Treva Lindsay um, about her new book, America Goddamn. Treva, I'm going to digress for a minute because you sort of took us there uh, a couple answers back. And that's about the, you called it a reckoning that this country is having around reproductive rights. Um, and, and I want to I want to put this conversation squarely in, I want to have it squarely through the lens of black women. And I want to spend some time talking about why this is a particularly violent act against Black women's bodies. 
not just because of the right or not having the right um, to choose when, where, how, if uh, I have an abortion. But let's talk about the access that Black women have to reproductive care, mm. to sexual health care, mm-hmm. where that care where that care is provided. Um, and 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 so for me, I, I've really been railing around like, yes, abortion is important and it matters. But this is literally a death sentence, absolutely, for Black women and girls across this country. Absolutely, I I I, I am with you a hundred percent on that because reproductive care is health care, and we know that there are abysmal conditions. Um, of the abysmal condition of the healthcare system means that Black women and girls are going to be disparately treated across the board in so many areas. So as you said, access to birth control, access to preventative measures, access to quality, affordable, and in my mind should be free healthcare, (laughs) and access to these services are just not there for so many Black women and girls. And so many of these clinics that are now being forced to shut down and not operate or have to kind of put things on pause as they figure out what is legal in this moment provided a range of services that were frontline for black women's reproductive health. And I think it's very important for us to name that, as you said, alongside abortion. I want to be very clear. This is an attack on abortion, but it is an attack on, again, our personhood. It's an attack on our autonomy. It's an attack on us where we will feel the brunt of it because we don't get access to the kind of care that produces the best outcome. So we already see that in the Black maternal health crisis, that we see what it means to not be cared for in real ways for people who are dying to give birth, literally dying. We know when someone like a Serena Williams is not taken seriously during her birthing process, what does that mean for the poor black woman in X city? And I want to say this anyway, I know the South becomes the focus because so many of the states there have some of the more repressive laws, but be clear, that was a national decision that was made, right? right? And that reflects something and that impacts people with gestational capacity across the board. And because black women and girls are, are a, a significant portion of us are not being afforded caring care, robust care, that the elimination of this particular form of care and the and, um, abortion means that other health services are also now thrown into chaos or thrown out altogether because we can't have that. And so I want people to be very clear that this feels like an attack and it is an attack on black women and girls. Yeah. And that was my talking point out here, right. In, in so-called liberal California, right. Cause you saw a lot of, you know, of uh, white women, I'll say in particular, run around saying, well, at least we live in California. Right. And I was like, your lens is too narrow. Oof. Right. Because if Planned Parenthood shuts down in Texas, it's shutting down here too. If they're, if Planned Parenthood's federal funds are gutted, they're gutted everywhere, not just where abortion is illegal. And just folks having a real hard time um, c- connecting those dots. I mean, that's where I go when I don't have insurance. Right. right. And, and, and here's the thing. And the connections that people refuse to make, like 
well, I'm in California. Why don't people just move? I mean, it's so disconnected from the reality of people's lives. It's so arrogant. It's so privileged. And Black women have been telling folks for a long time, Roe was the floor. That was the floor. That's right. That was never supposed to be the only place at which we were accessing and fighting and galvanizing around reproductive rights and the right to abortion. And because we knew and we saw the attacks, we knew this was coming. And we kept being told we were being dramatic. We were da-da-da-da-da. It's codified. It's blah, 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 blah. And here we are. And we are the ones who will be disparately impacted. And because there is a criminalizing element to so many of these new laws that are emerging, we already know who is hyper-criminalized. So it's not going to be the rich white woman, in most cases, who is criminalized. It's going to be the poor black one. And that criminalization means that we're talking about a distinct relationship between policing and black women and girls that we need to be very honest about when we're talking about how we fight and what we're mobilizing around when we talk about abortion rights and reproductive health care. We're taking a position that's like, you're policing. You're policing our bodies, but you're also now policing in the more traditional sense of criminalizing. I'm going to say, well, maybe. This might be the last thing. I know we need to move on, but... um. You know, I, I when I said this is literally a life or death sentence, you know, you brought up, of course, you know, the number of black women that die just giving birth, something that we've done naturally for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and, and it's something I've harped on on the station for 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 many years. Right. When, when I think about things, I think about STDs and specifically I think about the fact that we are still dying of HIV and AIDS. Mm. Black women are still dying of HIV and AIDS. And that's another thing that we like. We try to pretend, right? Or, or we say, right? <laughs> oh, that, that's behind us, right? Or, or, or get prep or, or get this or get that. Like those are the kinds of things I'm thinking is bad now with access. Mm. What are we looking at in six months to a year, if not sooner? Yeah. I mean, I think we're looking at a deepening of health inequities and disparities that once again have Black women and girls feeling the brunt of those inequities and disparities. And I think that will, as you said, it will show up in HIV infections. It will show up in other STIs. It will show up in other forms of care and other issues. Um, I think we're just tipping to a point where I would say we're building on a crisis of a crisis, right? So a crisis within a crisis. These were already crises levels, and we're going to see an intensification of that um, with so many of these new laws and the hyper-criminalization of healthcare, which is what's happening with this. I want people to recognize that this, this is the criminalization of healthcare that's happening. And we know in this country who is targeted with criminalization, that mass incarceration isn't objective. It is targeted mass incarceration that specifically targets vulnerable, racially minoritized, poor communities. And that is extremely important to take into account. This also means for folks who are survivors of sexual violence, which Black women and girls are disproportionately represented among those numbers in the United States as well, who may be seeking abortion care, will also 
be bearing the brunt of an in, another form of violation after enduring sexual violence and sexual violations. So we are just at the beginning of this storm that's brewing and it just feels like we're constantly in storms, but we remain so connected to each other of saying, we got us. So I'm amazed by the kind of activism and organizing that I've seen already among Black women to ensure that people are still getting robust care um, and the care that they need and that they are seeking. And I think we have to be reminded of that. And I say this often that, you know, so often we hear the phrase, right? No one cares about Black women and girls that you can say it offhand because it feels like so many people don't, but Black women and girls care about Black women and girls and we're not no Yes, one. we do. <laughs> yes, we do. And no, we're not. And I'm so glad um, that you said that. Um, we are in conversation with Trevi Lindsay about her book, America Goddamn. Trevi, I want to go back to another term inside of the book, multiple jeopardy. You talk, define what that is and talk about how it plays out in the lives of Black women and girls in this country. Absolutely. So multiple jeopardy um, is a term coined by the amazing Deborah King. And it is thinking about the interconnected ways that different systems of oppression are working in the lives of Black women. It's a way for us to account for the precarity. Sometimes we're feeling the scarcity of resources that are afforded to us, the scarcity of compassion, care, um, justice <laughs> that we're often confronting. And I use this term in the book because one, when I read it, I was like, oh my goodness, yes, this is this is what I felt at the intersection of racism and sexism and ableism and queer phobia, transphobia, anti-poor, all of these things, because they all work together. And multiple jeopardy allows us to see how they're working to, together to create conditions of unfreedom. And it was really important for me to acknowledge this longer history of Black women theorizing these intersections. So some people might be familiar with intersectionality as coined by Kimberly Crenshaw as a way to think about from a critical legal studies perspective, these intersecting oppressions. And of course, she writes the first kind of legal studies paper about intersectionality in response to how we attune to violence against women of color and the criminal legal system. <laughs> and so it, it's very befitting that we have terms like multiple jeopardy, double jeopardy before that from Francis Bill, Anna Julia Cooper in the 19th century, thinking about what it meant to be a colored woman in the South. <laughs> There's always been Black women who have been processing what it means to live at the site of multitudes and that's multitudes in terms of multiplicative oppression and multitudes in terms of the abundance of things we create and struggle for and demand and build in spite of that warring multitude there's the multitudes we go to war with and then they're the multitudes that we are confronting We've been in the midst, right, of this economic pandemic, which came on the heels of the coronavirus and hit our communities, of course, the, the hardest, because we were already the hardest hit just by the status quo. Um, and despite multiple talking heads across this country and coordinating talking points, bl blaming um, the uptick in intercommunal violence, other types of violence in our communities on defund, which didn't happen really anywhere, um, as opposed to the exacerbation of poverty. 
Mm. And and we're seeing right more more dead black bodies. Um, and we say I say um, my organization says all violence is state violence, right? So it's not just when the police kill us, but it's when literally the conditions of the state um, kill us. We're, we're we're not talking about there either. Like the impact that this is having this particular kind of violence on black women and girls, both in terms of who is on either side of that gun, mm. but also something that you bring up in the the book a bit about our role in protecting even those who are creating harm in our communities hmm. and how we've been put into that role as yes. a form of survival for ourselves, our family, our race. You know, this was the hardest chapter in the book for me to write to talk about intercommunal violence because one of the elements of the book that for me is one of the most important is that the stakes of this book are deeply personal. And I'm writing as a historian, I'm writing as a Black feminist scholar, but I'm also writing as a survivor of multiple forms of violence. And with the exception of one particular instance of violence that I describe in the book that happened to me, all of the rest of them were at the hands of Black men and boys. And the consistency of how we struggle to find the language to talk about what happens intercommunally without repeating or embracing these pathological and criminalizing narratives about Black people, because that's never what I want to do when discussing this. And I also want to be honest. And so you have so many Black women throughout history, artists, writers, Serious scholars, everyday folks who do all of those things as well, who are trying to figure out how to hold our communities accountable when they are harmful sites, while also not allowing white supremacy to use that to let itself off the hook for the violence that it's doing. And to also see how white supremacy and patriarchy are warring against Black communities, and that shows up in, in ways that are more visible and legible to us, like police violence. But I would argue that seeing the kind of homicide rates that we see of Black women, and it's intensified, as you said, during the pandemic, that when I wrote the book, I think it was about one every 19 hours. And now we're down to one every 17 hours of Black Women on Hill. And then earlier this year that it's estimated now that almost four Black women or girls are killed every day. And so we have to be honest about that. That's a crisis. And most Violence happens intercommunally for any racial group. So there's no such That's thing right. as black on black crime, white on white. This is because you don't you've never heard white on white crime, but guess who harms most white people? Other white people. Right. So right. we need to find a way that steps out of pathology, that steps out of this hypercriminalizing logic that is delivered to us, hand delivered to us by white supremacy, and say, what is happening with patriarchal violence within our communities and why it has such a stronghold in the ways that we engage one another and that disparately impact Black women and girls in the community. And to be clear, patriarchal violence impacts Black men and boys too because 
most black men and boys are killed by other black men and boys. And I would argue that that's also a form of patriarchal violence. It's an assertion of male dominance that we're seeing in these interactions. And patriarchy tells us that male dominance is this preferred way of existing. And it does not give us tools to really think about liberatory relations among one another. And so I love to talk to people, particularly men and boys, about the role that patriarchy plays in their lives. And that also leaves them vulnerable to violence at so many levels, at the most intimate levels, as well as the structural level. And of course, at the kind of criminalizing, targeted mass incarceration level that we often see in the lives of Black men and boys. Right, and I'm just going to point out, I mean, the cycle that I, I know you already know, right? So it's the, the and it's, it's patriarchy. It's, it's America's white supremacist brand of patriarchy that creates these conditions and then utilizes the fallout of those conditions, which, yes, we, we have to figure out personal responsibility inside of our community, but then to further um, inflict harm through the violence of the carceral state presented as the only solution, which we know is never going to make our communities ever say, any safer. Absolutely. Right. And one of the things that scares me about this moment is we are repeating the 1990s when we were begging for the three strikes laws, when mm. we were begging for the crime bill, because we were told by the very entities, institutions, ideologies, powers, right, that the only way to make us safe from the mess that they made <laughs> was to send our people in a more day mess. It's just, it, it, it is like Groundhog Day, <laughs> listening, we're going to do 100,000 more cops and more this and more that, and we want to crack down. And these, you know, we had this wave of so-called progressive prosecutors who elected, and then you have people being recalled and really conservative prosecutors saying, I'm going to make, you know, stronger sentences, longer sentences, revoke bail reform, like all of these things that are pushing us right back to where we were in the early 90s. And then had to go back and be like, wow, maybe we were wrong. Targeted mass incarceration is, depletes and harms our communities. And here we are again, demanding targeted mass incarceration. And I'm wanting us to have so much more imagination, so much more investment in another way of holding each other accountable and thinking about what are the things that are at the root of the violence that is happening right now, which is to say, we're still not anywhere near where we were in the early nineties in terms of violence. We're not, yes. despite what all kind of spectacular mass, mass media reporting will tell you right now, we are not. That does not mean that people aren't being impacted by violence in ways that we should be concerned about. We absolutely should. But so much of this is tied to the conditions of poverty. It could die to the conditions of not having what's needed to survive, that we have conscripted millions of people to unlivable living and then are just like, okay, we'll go at it and we'll see what happens. It is a truly death-dealing experiment. There's so much that I have left to ask you, but we are running out of time. Treva Lindsay, the tagline for, for this show, for Law and Disorder, is expose, agitate, and build. We've done some exposing. Uh, hopefully we've agitated some folks. I want to spend the last of our time building together and give you some time to, to talk about your thoughts about moving forward, turning the tide. I mean, you said something interesting, like it's it's not our job. These weren't your exact words. This is me regurgitating, right? Pr proving our humanity. 
And yet I feel like that's what we have. Well, that's what we, we're doing every single day, even sometimes through my activism and organizing. I feel like I'm screaming the subtext of everything I'm screaming in these streets is we are human too. Hmm. What what is the building aspect, particularly in this political climate? Ooh, I, ooh, yes. Um, <laughs> but what I think is important in that is that belief I have in us, and that the fact that although nobody actually defunded the police really, like at any substantive level, or that that we've had more conversations about abolition, about reform, that I've had more robust conversations and p- people willing to get engaged in that kind of work than ever before. And organizing is, right, building the things that we need to sustain ourselves when these systems are at full war against us. They're always warring, but they're definitely these eruptive moments where it becomes even more intense. And so I think about this in the wake of Roe v. Wade decision, just looking at how organizers immediately got together got abortion funds, already had networks set up to ensure that people had care, that you knew where to go and have that and that that's expanding and how we do that. I think we need to think about that in terms of how we engage people around policing. So for me, that's making sure people in my community know resources in the community that allow them not to engage the police. So if this is happening, you don't actually need to call the police. You can call this, right? There's a great running list. Um, blanking on the name at the moment that has in different cities across the country and all kinds of alternatives to engaging police, right? And doing that. Defundthepolice.org. Yes. Right. And like what that looks like, how do we engage that? How do we get more people to see that? Because I think about, you know, these distress calls often that black women are in and, you know, people are calling thinking they're going to get an ambulance or a mental health expert. And it ends up being the police who are, ill-equipped to do almost anything, but certainly not caring for a Black woman in mental distress. And so providing those opportunities and those resources, I think we go local. I think we build community with one another. I, At the end of the book, I list all these different organizations that are doing really incredible work. Some are local orgs, some are national orgs. But I tell people, a lot of times you want to like get out there and you want to create something. I want us to build (laughs) into things that already are existing. I want us to be in community and organizing with one another, learning from one another, raising consciousness with one another, learning from one another in this moment. Because we're going to need that kind of people resources, that kind of relational gifting between us and among us if we're going to do this right. And so there are incredible organizations already doing this work. This is a moment to join. And I do encourage people to join organizations because doing this work in a collective is so much more effective and so much more dynamic um, than trying to set out and just do it on your own or recreate something. Because chances are someone out there shares your passion and they might have a different skill set that compared with your skill set and the skill set of a few other folks, you can really make a different kind of impact. So if that's electoral organizing for you at the local level, boom, that's reproductive justice. If it's climate justice, if it's trans rights, if it's all of these issues, there's so much going on right now. So sometimes you define what is my skill set that I can offer to these movements and 
what am I passionate about? And I can see the connection to all these other things, but I'm going to double down on being present here in these ways. Because we do have a finite capacity. We do have finite bandwidth. So it's about connecting all of those issues and how we move, but also finding those organizations, collectives, and initiatives that you can really bring your full self to. That's right. And I'll use this as a shameless plug uh, for the Anti-Police Terror Project and Mental Health First, which is serving the Bay Area um, in those capacities. You have been listening to Law and Disorder with Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning was Treva Lindsay, an Associate Gender and Sexuality Studies Professor at Ohio State University and founder of the Transformative Black Feminism Initiative in Columbus, Ohio. Her new book, America Goddamn, explores violence against Black women and girls in this country, how we got to a place where it is normalized, it is a normalized secret, and the reverberation of this violence on every facet of our lives. Treva, if people want to find you and your brilliance, where should they go? Yes, so you can find me on social media at um, Diva Feminist on Twitter. And um, you can find me on Instagram at America Goddamn with all of my professional updates. My website's TrevaBLindsay.com. And I'm available and always, always excited to talk about the amazingness of Black women and girls and what, what we're up against. And I'm always here and so thankful for platforms like this to be able to have such frank and rich discussions about us. You are welcome here anytime. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.